Alright guys, welcome back to a, another edition or the final edition of Tim's Takeaway for um, Airway Management. So in, in the previous two sessions, um, you know, we kind of talked a little bit and, and provided the overview of airway management. And we went through some of the pathophysiology and we went through just some of the basic things that we need to take a look at. And we last talked about oxygenation. And this is one of those things where I know it confuses a whole bunch of people like, Okay, Tim, I don't, I don't get it. Like I have ventilation and then you're telling me there's oxygenation and then you're telling me there's respiration. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, so not that that helps you out right this second. So remember that if you find a ventilation problem, um, oxygen and respiration are going to be hindered um, like 99% of the time. There's always a 1% possibility. We'll you know, talk more about that. Um, when you get into some things with cardiac arrest and some things that we can take a look at, and this is why maybe hands-only CPR may have an issue. But I'm not going to go down that pathway right now. So it is dealing with ventilation and providing oxygenation to help improve respiration. So one way that we need to be able to do that, and we talked about nasal cannulas and, and non-rebreathers and trach masks, those were dealing with oxygenation issues. Those are dealing with ways in which we can improve respiration in the final end, hopefully. Now we're going to talk about what do you do when you actually have to assist somebody with their breathing. And here we are assisting with artificial ventilation. And usually we're utilizing some basic airway. Um, we use a ventilation technique that's going to be effective when we utilize this appropriately. The most common piece of equipment that we use to ventilate patients in the field is going to be a bag valve mask. You will see it abbreviated as BBM. Um, other times you're going to see it listed as a, um, a bag mask device, and they still list it as a BVM, but there's also another one that's called bag mask device. When you're running it at, at, at least at least 15 liters of oxygen, you can deliver nearly 100% oxygen concentration. And what I mean by at least, that means that if you're dealing with something that is, is at least 15 liters per minute, you can and your regulators have a tendency to go up to at least 25. So this should not be an issue for you there. Um, and here you can deliver as much volume as you want just as, as soon as you squeeze the bag. Now, when you compare it to mouth-to-mask ventilation, um, it delivers a higher concentration of oxygen, but the tidal volumes are usually less, um, so it does kind of create some issues. Now, there are some wonderful little gadgets and things that, that make up a bag valve mask. Um, the, there is a, a refilling bag, so the bag actually refills itself. Um, there may be a pop-off valve. Um, there's a usually a uh, outlet valve so that people are not breathing the carbon dioxide back in. Um, there is an oxygen reservoir bag, which is the um, big plastic bag at the end, and it allows for high concentrations of oxygen. There's a one-way valve to allow the influx of, of oxygen. And remember, that's going to be running at least 15 liters per minute. And then we also have that face mask that we're going to be able to see through. So when we assist 
people with ventilation, right? Um, your book in, in a lot of the literature will say, you know, you need to explain to the patient exactly what it is that you're going to do. Okay, let me tell you something. Here's the reality. If I take a bag valve mask and I put it on your face when you can't breathe, and I tell you that you need to calm down because I'm going to help you breathe, they're not going to be calm. Okay, that is just one of those things that's going to happen. So you can explain all you want to the patient. We'll talk about how we have some other devices that are going to work for that and why they should be um, really used a whole heck of a lot more. Something such as, oh, I don't know, maybe CPAP. Yeah, we'll take a look at that here in a little bit too. So if you're assisting with ventilation, you want to squeeze the bag each time the patient breathes and then you maintain the same rate as what the patient does. Now, after you get about five to 10 breaths in, you can adjust the rate and, and actually deliver an appropriate tidal volume. And what happens then is that you're actually able to maintain an adequate minute volume. So they may be breathing at 30 times a minute, but you start assisting them at 20 times a minute, you provide them with a much better tidal volume and eventually their respiratory rate will, will come in alignment with where you're at. You know, patients that are in respiratory arrest need immediate treatment to live. We don't need to worry about any other machines, anything else. You take a look at the patient, you recognize that they're in respiratory arrest. We need to, uh, to intervene and use a bag mask device. So once you've determined that that patient's not breathing, you start off with the ventilations immediately. You can use either a mouth-to-mask device, you can use a BBM, and another one that don't see a whole lot of people utilize anymore, which is called a manually triggered ventilation device, right? So the manually triggered ventilation device, um, we used to use an awful lot, um, I don't want to say in the old days, but it was one of those things that we used was also known as a flow restricted uh, oxygen powered ventilation device. I know big words, um, which allowed for one person to be able to use both hands so you could maintain a mask seal um, and then you could also provide some positive pressure ventilation. Now, one of the big disadvantages to this was it was really hard to maintain adequate ventilation without any type of assistance. And um, we also had problems where there was a high incidence of the gastric um, area being inflated. So there was gastric distension, and it, it could also cause some damage to the structures that were within the chest cavity. So um, it also required that there was additional training that needed to occur, particularly um, when we had to deal with infants and children. And then um, it was one of those things that should not really be used in somebody who has COPD or a suspected cervical spine or chest injury. So there were some kind of big disadvantages to those things. And really, if you think about it, you know, we got a COPD or you got somebody with a chest injury and uh, maybe cervical spine, those are people that most likely you needed to intervene with. So it created a problem and that's uh, something we definitely needed to take a look at. Um, other things that was pretty cool about it, I guess you could say, is, is that its oxygen concentration was at about 100%. Um, you'd get about 40 liters of flow. So uh, it would come off of the oxygen regulator and it would come out at about 50 PSI as to where you were at. 
Um, there were usually some alarms that allowed for a relief valve to open up. Um, and there was a, uh, you could really be able to utilize this in a lot of different conditions. And there was a trigger that uh, actually you were able to um, put, use both hands so that you could keep them on the seal and give a nice tight seal to the patient while you'd be able to tilt their head back. Um, we don't see a whole lot of those anymore. As a matter of fact, I have to go back and take a look at this stuff for Pennsylvania. I don't even think it's required anymore because nobody uses it. Yeah, right? So uh, anyway, just wanted to get that one out of the way. So normally what we end up doing um, is that we're, we're trying to go back and look at normal ventilation versus uh, when we provide positive pressure ventilation. You know, what we're providing is necessary to just sustain life. So it's not the same as normal breathing. You know, in normal breathing, diaphragm contracts and there's a negative pressure that's generated in that chest cavity, so air comes in. And when we do positive pressure ventilation, um, we're forcing air into the chest cavity. So this could cause an increase in intrathoracic pressure. Again, inside the chest, we're looking at high pressures. So it can cause some compression of the vena cava. And that, in turn, because the vena cava returns blood to the heart, um, reduces the amount of blood that's returned to the heart and in essence re reduces the amount of blood that the heart can actually pump. It also requires us to use more volume um, to have the same effects as normal breathing. So this pushes the airway walls out of where their normal anatomical shape is going to be. And when we force air into the trachea, some of it is truly going to go into the, um, um, down into the gastric area. So it's gonna go into the esophagus. And it causes some gastric distension and this causes some vomiting and aspiration. So we really have to be aware of our rate and volume of artificial ventilation so that we can help reduce the um, drop in cardiac output. So if you go back to CPR and you remember that uh, we're really not changing anything here, we're changing nothing whatsoever. Um, if you're ventilating somebody it's, as an adult, it's one breath every five to six seconds. If it's a child, it's one breath every three to five seconds. And as well as an infant, it's going to be one breath every three to five seconds as well. Now, a mouth-to-mask barrier device I had mentioned er earlier, and as part of the EMT class, you have to, you have, to have one, right? Um, a couple of reasons for having that. One, if you're going to use it outside, um, outside of where you're working, you know, at least you have it, something available to you. And that's how we test you in relationship to your CPR skills. So uh, a couple reasons for making sure that you have that. But it's really something that it's a protective item. It has a plastic barrier so that it goes between your face and the patient's face. It also has a one-way valve. So it doesn't allow the backflow of secretions such as gases, you know, that they exhale out. It's not coming back into your mouth and also in the event that they vomit. Um, so we do practice with those. And it, a lot of times the masks also have what is uh, going to be an oxygen inlet. So it does allow for oxygen be to be delivered during mouth-to-mask mouth ventilation. Now a bag valve mask or that BVM does provide less tidal volume than a mouth-to-mask ventilation. 
but as we said earlier, it provides a higher concentration of oxygen. And um, as you gain experience, you're also going to have the ability to deliver better tidal volume. But when you use the bag valve mask, you need to be alert for any type of gastric distension. So don't really squeeze the crap out of the bag. If you squeeze it too fast, it opens up the esophageal sphincter and it pushes more air into the belly. And that just creates more of a problem. Um, the other thing is, is that you may need to be utilizing this with two people, one holding the mask and the other one ventilating, squeezing that bag. But when you're using this, it should be something where you're observing the chest to rise and fall. This is where you are making the determination that that individual is truly receiving the correct amount of air. So when you use this with one person, um, this is when um, you put the mask over the patient's face and that top part is going to be over the bridge of the nose and then um, you're bringing the bottom part in the groove between that lower lip and the chin so you're really going to help try to make this seal you use your to create that seal you use your index finger and it goes over the lower part of the mask and your thumb goes over the upper part of the mask um, and then you use the rest of your fingers to create an e that's going to go along the lower part of the jaw Right? This is what's referred to as the EC clamp technique. So when you bring that lower jaw up into the mask with, the, with your uh, three fingers, um, this helps maintain the seal because you're pushing down with the C part and you're pulling up with the E and helps create a better seal. And then you squeeze the bag with your other hand. And again, you're doing this one breath every five seconds for an adult. And then in kids and infants, we're going to reduce that to once every three to five seconds. Now, Keep in mind that you work as a team, and when you work as a team, you have a tendency to be with an ALS provider as well, somebody who is above the EMT level. This means that they may actually place an endotracheal tube or an eye gel or a King Airway, and to make life easier for us, and this is even in CPR, where we give one breath every six seconds at this point. Right? We don't pause if we're doing CPR with these folks. We do not pause for compressions. And um, in Pennsylvania, we do pit crew CPR, um, and we need to make sure that we discuss pit crew CPR um, before you graduate the program so that you're familiar with what's happening in the out-of-hospital setting. Now, whenever it is possible, it is preferred that you use two people. Um, more and more literature is coming out that says, you know what, we've always preached this. We've always talked about it. But finally, um, there's a lot of data that is indicating that, guess what, we should be doing this much more frequently. So um, with two people, one is holding the mask in position. You're putting the thumbs over the top part of the mask and the index fingers are going along the bottom half. And then that... Um, individuals then going to use the last three fingers to bring that lower jaw up so you're putting two E's on the side and then the second person that is there is going to squeeze the bag right so the skill here is truly the individual who is holding the seal now gastric distension is going to occur um, it is just a matter of how much is going to occur so it is very possible that the stomach is going to fill with air. And you're more likely to have it occur much quicker 
if you ventilate too forcefully, too rapidly with a bag valve or even a pocket mask. And the airway is also something that could become instructed if you're using, if you're not um, opening up the airway properly. So you give some uh, gentle breaths over one second and you ventilate the patient at an appropriate rate. Make sure you have a great appropriate volume with that. And if you see the gastric distension is occurring, then um, you need to ventilate the patient. And if, um, if an ALS provider is not there, then you may need to um, potentially put some pressure over the abdomen to see if you can get some of that air out. That's not something you want to do right away, but um, it is something you may need to consider a little, little bit later on. Now, if vomiting occurs as a result of this, you're going to have to move the patient on their side. So you have to turn the whole body over to their side. You're going to have to wipe out their mouth with your gloved hand and make sure that you suction. And then afterwards, you can return them into that um, supine position so that we can continue ventilating them. Um, one last thing in that whole area, um, which kind of goes along with a um, bag valve mask, is an automatic transport ventilator. And these are usually uh, some manually triggered ventilation devices. They are attached to uh, a control box that allows for uh, variations in the ventilation to be set up. And these things actually help free you up to be able to uh, maintain the mask seal or assure that there is a, a continued airway maintaining or an airway being open. Sorry, I looked at my notes the wrong way. And then we want to look at making sure that we do a constant reassessment of the patient. Now, I mentioned uh, just a little bit earlier, I said about, you know, um, it's very difficult to really come in and, and, and try to look at a patient who is having respiratory problems. And then all of a sudden, you're supposed to put a bag valve mask over their face. Well, guess what? That is not the best thing in the world to do. They're not going to put up with it very much. So what we want to use is a device known as CPAP, Continuous Positive Airway Pressure. Um, and people will refer to this as non-invasive positive pressure ventilation. So non-invasive positive pressure ventilation. Um, and really, uh, a lot of times people already have this at home. They have a version of it at home, I should say. Um, and this is used, CPAP is used at home for sleep apnea. But we're utilizing it in the manner in which people that are experiencing a lot of respiratory distress and having a problem with ventilation um, and uh, um, some of the oxygenation becomes a little bit of a problem. So we need to step in. Um, so CPAP increases the pressures inside the lungs, right? We talked about pressures earlier. So it allows the alveoli to become more open. So during these times, some of the alveoli just have not been able to fill back up with air. And when we reinflate them, it starts to push more oxygen across that alveolar membrane. And if there's any fluid that may be in there, it is then forced into uh, back into the pulmonary circulation. So there's some interstitial fluid, I can't say it very well, interstitial fluid that is then pushed back into the pulmonary circulation. So one of the ways that you end up doing this is that you're using a face mask that is being held to the face and usually this is being held on by a strapping system that goes around the head. 
So we have to have a good seal, but you're allowed to have a little bit of leakage that is there. It's not like a firefighter putting on a self-contained breathing apparatus. It doesn't have to be that tight. You just have to make a good seal. And a lot of these systems are using oxygen today, um, and that can pose problems. Some of the newer systems coming out are not so um, oxygen dependent. They don't need lots of pressure. Uh, but we have to make sure that we're very careful about those because you can run out, and that's why it's important to make sure that you check your vehicles at the start of your shift. You also want to make sure that you're using some uh, caution with patients who may have a low blood pressure because CPAP can cause a drop in cardiac output. Um, when you're looking at when you can use this, so you're using it for patients that are able to follow commands, like they're alert, they're able to follow commands. Um, you're going to see whether or not patient has obvious signs of some moderate to severe respiratory distress. And a lot of times these are related to things such as pulmonary edema, or you're talking about chronic obstructive pulmonary disease. Those are types of issues, and it could also be something maybe like asthma. Patients may be breathing really fast. If they're breathing really fast, then you need to take a look at what their overall minute volume is like. Are they bringing in enough air each time and then look at their respiratory rate? Um, usually once you get over about 26 to 30, you got to start considering some other things that may be ongoing. Pulse oximetry ratings, great to take a look at, but again, um, if you're looking at a pulse ox that is less than 90 and they're experiencing a lot of those other issues, this may be something that you really need to take a look at. Um, by deploying CPAP. It's always advisable that if CPAP enters your mind, it's something that you should probably use. Um, it is contraindicated in patients who have respiratory arrest. Um, if they have a pneumothorax or they've suffered some type of massive chest trauma, we'll come back and take a look at this. Well, actually, let me just address it right here. So if they have a pneumothorax, it could become a problem, but there are times in which you may have a patient who has a flail chest, and you may hear that being used as well. But you always should speak to uh, medical direction to find out if they, if you, if they need to be placed on um, CPAP with a flail chest. Uh, patients who have a tracheostomy probably got to be a little bit of a problem there because uh, you need to have a good seal. Uh, you got to worry about GI bleeding or vomiting. Uh, patients who can't follow commands, and if there is anything else such as deterioration, they go into respiratory failure. We're not going to be able to utilize that. So when you use this, there are uh, you're going to have the mask, you're going to have the circuit, uh, there may be some filters in there, and usually there's a one-way valve. The generator may actually be a big yellow or red unit that is uh, powering this system, or it may be connected to the oxygen supply system, either on your portable D or E cylinder, or it may also be attached to your M cylinder that is inside the ambulance. But that CPAP circuit um, it creates some resistance through the respiratory cycle, and it gives a little bit of a back pressure into the airways. So it actually pushes open a lot of those smaller airways, such as the bronchioles and the alveoli, as the patient exhales. So usually, you can set these with uh, the CPAP. You're going to set some pressure with it. You're going to set it anywhere between 5 and 10 centimeters of water pressure. And that's usually somewhere where we're okay within that acceptable range. Never go above 10. Um, somewhere around 6 to 7 is probably ideal for most patients. 
But remember that CPAP's powered by oxygen, so you gotta make sure that you have sufficient oxygen supplies with you. Patients can become claustrophobic and they may resist the whole thing. Um, my experience has been that not many people are having a whole lot of those issues. Um, they may say that they're claustrophobic, but once they start breathing a whole heck of a lot better, they do have a tendency to calm down some, but it is something you need to consider. There may be higher pressures that are generated by the CPAP that um, could cause a pneumothorax in some folks. Um, it may also lower the patient's blood pressure because of increasing intrathoracic pressure. And if they start to show signs of any type of deterioration, we need to get that CPAP off of them and switch to a bag valve mask pretty darn quick. You know, a little bit earlier we talked about um, utilizing trach masks, and we do have patients that we're going to run into who have stomas or tracheostomy tubes. And when this has happened, um, they've had part of their larynx removed and uh, they have a, now a permanent tracheal stoma, which is really an opening in the chest, or I'm sorry, in the neck that uh, connects directly to the trachea. Um, if they have a tracheostomy tube in place, you can ventilate through that tube with a bag valve mask. It is a standard adapter. The adapter that we talk about all the time is a 15 to 22 millimeter adapter. It's on the bag valve mask, and it's gonna fit right onto that tube that's, that's there for the stoma. You use 100% oxygen attached directly to the bag valve mask, so if you have to ventilate somebody with a stoma, you can go right into that trach. Um, if the patient, though, does not have a tube inside that stoma because they may have taken it out, right? So you can then use a uh, child or an infant mask, put it over your regular bag valve mask, and now you seal up that stoma. And by doing so, you're actually allowing for some ventilation to occur. We had mentioned earlier um, that, you know, sometimes these things get, they can get clogged. So sometimes what you may have to do is actually take a French or a soft tip catheter and try to suction out that stoma. Um, and at times you may have to, uh, um, people will have to put a little bit of saline in there to try to clear some of that out. So you gotta look for those types of airway obstructions that may occur inside somebody who has a stoma. Um, speaking of airway obstructions, there's a couple things you need to take a look at. If it's a complete airway obstruction, it really is a true emergency and that means that we have to do something immediately about it, otherwise the patient's gonna die. So um, if it's in an adult, um, usually it occurs during meals. If it's a child, it's probably something where they're crawling all around, playing with toys. Um, and But when you take a look at all these things, the most common cause of airway obstruction is truly the tongue because it relaxes into the back of the throat. And that's when you, you get into seizures and some other things. People say, oh my God, they swallowed their tongue. They're not swallowing their tongue. They went unconscious, the tongue became relaxed and it went to the back of their mouth, back of their throat. If they have some type of mild airway obstruction, these are folks that can still exchange air, but um, they may be in some respiratory distress. So we gotta watch. If they have noisy breathing and they may be able to cough, that's a good thing. You wanna make sure that you can encourage them um, and don't interfere, interfere with them. Like don't stick anything in her mouth, like encourage them to get that out. So you continuously reassess the patient. If they have poor air exchange and they have weak, ineffective uh, coughs 
and they may have increased breathing difficulty. You may hear something referred to as strider, where this is now more of a high-pitched noise, and this usually occurs during the inhalation phase, and it may also develop some cyanosis. This means that we're dealing with mild to uh, severe um, respiratory issues, and therefore we're going to have to start treating these folks, right? Now, Severe ones are where these individuals can't breathe, talk, or cough, um, and everybody always says, oh, hey, you know what, they're going to give you the universal distress sign that I can't breathe or I'm choking. Um, haven't really seen a whole lot of people do that, but, um, I mean, they have that look on their face. They all have had that. And if the patient's found unresponsive, um, here, what you're doing, uh, let me back up. If you're dealing with somebody who has a severe airway obstruction, don't forget that you're doing the Heimlich maneuver. If they're awake, um, that's an adult. And if you're dealing with an adult or a child, and if you're dealing with uh, one who is unresponsive, doesn't appear to be breathing, then um, you have to start doing CPR. And the idea of that is that you're trying to produce some type of force from below to push that object out. If after a while there's been no rise and fall, after you've tried to ventilate when you walk in and find somebody, you really got to consider whether or not the patient has an airway obstruction. So that's why it's important to check um, as you're ventilating your patient with the BVM to see if the air is going in. So if I have that airway obstruction, I need to make sure that I open up the airway, preferred either head tilt, chin lift, or need to do a jaw thrust. If there's a lot of vomit or food in the airway that you can get out of there, reach in there with your fingers, with your gloved fingers, of course, and get it out of there. Suctioning, suctioning out the airway helps to maintain it and keep it clear. Abdominal thrusts are going to be one of the big, biggest things that we can do to dislodge it in somebody who is awake. Um, and then if they go unconscious, remember we're switching over to, um, uh, we're switching over to chest compressions. If the patient's unresponsive, um, you're going to continue to look for um, uh, the reassessment to try to confirm whether or not they have the ability to be ventilated. Sometimes they get um, it loosens up because of their muscles all relaxing. If after 30 compressions you open up their jaw and mouth, you'll look in there to see whether or not there's any type of foreign object. If there is, then you get it out of there, but you never perform a blind finger sweep inside that airway because it can actually push that um, foreign body down a whole heck of a lot more. So once you get it out um, or there was no object you're able to see, you can attempt to ventilate. But if you're still unable to ventilate, then you just keep on repeating the process. And I think I've talked about this in classes before in which to say, you know, you got to watch because a lot of people have dental appliances, whether it's a crown or a bridge, dentures, um, braces, um, retainers, whatever it may be, those things can also cause airway obstructions. So that means that you need to make sure that you get those objects out of there or those appliances out of there before providing ventilations. Now, if they have well-fitting dentures, leave them there. It helps to allow the bag valve mask to get a better seal. If there's loose dentures, you need to get them out of there. They're just going to become a problem for you a little bit later on. And finally, the last thing that you want to make sure that you take a look at is facial bleeding. If there's any type of bleeding that's occurring in the face, there's a lot of blood that is running through your face, right? 
Um, that's why some people get really red in the face all the time because they got a lot of that blood supply there, right? So uh, what the problem comes up with those, though, is that it never wants to stop bleeding. So it can cause some problems and it can cause an airway obstruction. So you need to make sure that you control the bleeding, typically with direct pressure, and then use suction as necessary for that. All right. I think that does it. We have gone through all of the airway adjuncts for Tim's takeaways on airway management. So that's going to wrap up this version. And hopefully, well, I know I'll be here for the next one. But uh, we'll see you on the next Tim's takeaway. Take care.